that is the sound of the Medics Money Financial Clinic bleep going off. Which means today we are discussing a podcast listener's situation that they've sent in to us. And this is the second part of Dr. Araf's case study from last week. So last week we covered so much ground and talked about largely about the tax situation. This week we get really into the financial planning aspects of it. So about protection, about pensions, about investing via a limited company, about wills. And we also talk about the tax efficient way to buy a fully electric car such as a Tesla and an important pensions pitfall uh, of buying an electric car via salary sacrifice. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I really recommend you to do that first because this follows on from that. A big part of what we do at Medics Money is to empower doctors like you to make better financial decisions. And where appropriate, we encourage you to do that yourself. So this podcast helps you to do things yourself, hopefully. Uh, Our tax guides are totally unique and help you to claim a tax rebate step by step. We also help you to fix your tax code yourself. So where possible, we're big fans of doing things yourself. But today's scenario, there is absolutely no way that any doctor, in my view, should be doing this themselves. And it really demonstrates the benefit of specialist advice. And I think there are comparisons to be made here between what I do as a GP to my patients, because I encourage my patients to self-care for minor illnesses, but they have that safety net of being able to access my expert um, advice if they need it. And at Medics Money, it's exactly the same. So please bear that in mind when you're listening to the episode today. And for many years, doctors struggled to know where to get the right advice for the right price, because as I think you can appreciate, advising doctors is a very specialist area which needs a specialist, but there's not really any agreed definition of what a specialist is. Now, using our unique skill set, we've made our own definition of what we consider to be specialists, put them all on one platform, Medics Money, and we can match your individual requirements to the right advisor for you. We've now matched over 3,000 of you to a new specialist accountant or specialist financial advisor. And it brings me and Ed so much satisfaction to know that our colleagues are getting the right advice for the right price. So sales pitch over. I think by now you understand what we're doing, why we're doing it. And I would just reiterate the importance of getting specialist advice, uh, the right advice for the right price, because unfortunately there are plenty of non-specialist advisors out there. Also have to insert our standard disclaimer, which is that this podcast is for information purposes only and does not represent any form of financial or tax advice. Tax limits can change and the value of your investments can rise and fall and you may get back less than you put in. So I hope you find this useful. As ever, keep the feedback coming. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you've got a hideously complex situation, uh, we love hideously complex situations. So send us in via our website and we'll try and feature it on the podcast for you. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So Nick, shall we talk about the financial planning aspects of this case? Let's say that Mr. Araf keeps um, some money in his uh, limited company. He's talking about investing that. What 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 would you say to him? What are you going to do for him? 
Yeah, so I think just to touch back, if I can, on the personal allowance trap, as we call it, i.e. that 60% um, effective tax rate between 100 and 125,000. I'm glad we've touched on that because the first thing I'd say is don't forget national insurance as well, because um, not only are you suffering that 60% income tax rate effectively between 100 and 125,000, you've got NI to apply on that and potentially with company discussions, employer NI, although I think Andy and I would uh, be very unlikely to encourage uh, anybody to take money out of their um, personal company that was going to attract employer NI, i.e. staying within the NI threshold. But the reason I wanted to just touch on that, Tommy, is um, a lot of senior um uh, medics, either consultants who are getting towards the top of their bands and are starting to get clinical excellence awards and other uh, additions to their com- contract, will find that even after the deduction of their pension contributions, their tax return each year says 105, 110, 115, 120,000. And obviously, there's a societal um, uh, message in here as well that you have to take into account. But you do have to look at it and say, what's the net benefit of that? ninth or tenth session that I'm doing and and quite a lot of the time when we're doing a sort of net benefit net cost analysis um, that will include a discussion around well what are you really taking home for that additional session and obviously this harks back to the problems we had 12 18 months ago um, but it very much still exists just because the presence of this 62% tax rate never mind well even if the annual allowance issue has now been somewhat resolved I think it's still something to bear in mind after that 62% tax you really don't see a lot of that um, that's just something I wanted to cover moving on to the limited company side, um, it's something we're seeing more and more of. So once you've got over that VAT and IR35 hurdle, um, and in in Arav's case here, you are billing £80,000 of, uh, uh, of income into your company each year, you sort of look at your options with that and, well, dividends don't look attractive, probably beyond the £2,000 dividend allowance. And I would encourage most people to utilize that and i think andy would too um i think we've sort of highlighted that for arav and his wife salary probably isn't going to be attractive because the name of the game here is is limiting personal income and not exposing yourself to those punitive tax rates which they would both seemingly be quite close to um the 62 percent rate um if all of the private income is going into a limited company so really you end up with the question um, from a financial planner, I'd always start with this question, is it affordable to leave all of the, the income bar the dividends in the company? If the answer to that is yes, then it's hard to see beyond leaving cash in the company. Um, and then that begs two questions, two main questions for me. Well, what on earth do I do with that cash? Because I think we're probably all aware of um, what interest rates are available. And I'm sorry to say that company cash deposits are no different. If anything, they're probably slightly worse than personal cash deposits. So you're not going to get a huge amount of interest on money left within the company. Um, and the second question is, well, again, that's that's all well and good. And um, But what am I going to do? Is it just going to sit in this company till the end of time? Well, well, no. So first off, in terms of um, the company, what I would sort of encourage people in this position to do is see that that company as almost a secondary pension 
asset. So what you do is you build your income, you pay your corporation tax at 19%, always maintain sufficient cash to cover any tax liabilities, any um, costs that might come out of the business. But then I'd start to look at subject to you having the risk propensity for this, start to look at committing on a regular basis an amount of cash to to investments. And a lot of people have a bit of a mental barrier about investing through a company, but very it's broadly very similar to investing as an individual. So all of the funds and things that are otherwise available to you through ICES, et cetera, are available through a company. Um, the only thing that you have to sort of do uh, that you don't have to do as an individual is apply for what's called an LEI, a legal entity uh, identifier. Um, and that's just a, a simple process that you do through the, the stock exchange. And it's basically just so that the, the authorities can keep a, a check on what's and what the uh, partnerships and companies are investing in. So um, as I would with an individual who's got excessive cash reserves, I would always encourage people to think about investing that money. If you think about Arav, it's likely he's not going to draw on that money for 20, 30 years. So he's got a, a long investment horizon. As I said earlier, if he's got the capacity for risk, i.e. he's happy to see the money go up and down in value, then history would dictate that he should be able to get real, i.e. above inflation returns by committing that company money to the investment markets and pursuing a long-term investment strategy. So that's what I would encourage. Um, I imagine a lot of the listeners are now thinking, well, what does that mean? What, what should I invest in? Should I go and buy Tesla shares? For most people, the answer to that is probably not. That's a fairly high-risk investment strategy. Um, but there are there are lots of options between the very low-risk option of holding cash up to the very high-risk options of buying Tesla shares. And I think that's probably the point, not to plug our services too much, that you probably do need to look at taking advice so that you, A, make prudent investment decisions, but B, you're aware of the tax consequences of holding those investments through a company, et cetera. So then we come on to the, the second issue of, well, that's all well and good, and hopefully these investments will do well, but when am I going to see the benefit of these investments? And I think this comes back to the discussion we were just having about salaries and dividends. And what, what we're essentially looking at here is a tax deferral um, strategy. So what a lot of my clients who have limited companies and are investing through limited companies, they're sort of thinking, right, well, I'll do this. And obviously, all of this is uncertain. It depends on future legislation. And that's something I'd always stress is we can plan, but we don't know what will change um, over the coming years. But effectively, most of my um, clients are either thinking, right, well, I might well pay a salary um, to uh, a lower earning spouse if that opportunity arises and they are doing work for the company and that's crucial they have to do appropriate work for the company we can't just give money for nothing but similarly we might might consider pension contributions as well for that individual if again they're doing a level of work that's commensurate with the overall remuneration package beyond that you're probably looking at taking income out um, in retirement and what i say to most most people is you've got two main options there. You could either retire early um, and have a few years where you neither have earned income 
nor do you have pension income. And in those years, based on current legislation, you'd probably try and take £50,000 of dividends out of the company each year, pay 7.5% within the basic rate limit, and you'd get whatever the maths is on, on that, sort of £47,000 of net income. And that's quite a useful way of retiring early, drawing those profits out of the company but not having to take the early withdrawal penalties. And I think for a lot of younger doctors like Arab, there's something really interesting here because most people I speak to don't want to retire at 65, which is the retirement age for his 2008 benefits, or state pension age at 67, 68, which is the retirement date for the 2015 and whatever will come in 2022, I think, will we'll mirror that. So I think these limited company secondary pension vehicles could provide a really interesting tool for allowing people to retire at 60, but bridge the gap between then and when their pension naturally starts. So um, that's one option. If if that person does plan to work all the way up until their retirement age, then then the next option is to have it as a supplementing uh, a supplement to their to their pension income. I.e., they retire, draw their pension immediately, but draw on the company to top up the income. And then you've obviously got to be aware of the rates of dividend tax that apply and plan your income accordingly. Um, but that's 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 how I see. Um, limited companies working from a financial planning perspective. Awesome. Uh, I've re- I mean, this is just so much value. Uh, there's so much going on uh, with this case uh, and it's really, really complex. Um, that was so useful. I want to ask some really simple questions just for trying to keep the level um, uh, simple as well. So you said that uh, basically you're saying cash is trash, right? Because of inflation. Do you want to just really briefly explain what the problem is with holding cash in this low interest rate environment? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll maybe put a little bit of caution over that comment, Tommy, in that cash uh, cash is trash when you've got a long-term investment horizon and you make you know, prudent investment decisions. But I was talking to someone last week and it was absolutely the right thing for them to keep um, money in cash because A, they uh, there was a, a chance of a need, uh, a property purchase within the next five years. And also, they had a very low propensity for risk and couldn't tolerate the ups and downs of the market. So um, that would just be an element of caution. I think to be able to embark on investment strategy, you only need to have a time scale. Uh, you need to be able to invest over more than five years would be my view. Um, and you need to be able to cope with the ups and the downs. So this time last year, um, somebody with an investment portfolio would probably have been looking at a 20 to 30% reduction in the value because of the the market impacts of COVID. Um, and I had lots of calls at that point in time with people sweating and worrying that they were never going to see their money back. And I tried to reassure some and I failed with some and succeeded with others. But you do have to um, be able to cope with that if you're going to go down the investment route. So coming back to, to the point around cash, um, and a lot of people think this is just a temporary thing because interest rates are so low. But if you look historically, interest rates on cash have consistently sat below the prevailing rate of inflation. So what that really means is if you hold your cash in a cash account, sit there for 10 years and then spend it 10 years later, your money is going to be able to buy you less when you end up using it than when you originally earned it. And that's the problem with cash. For that security and the constant value that it gives you, in reality, it's it's going to go backwards from a, from a purchasing perspective. So that is the, the underlying 
well, one of the main underlying factors that, that pushes people towards investing um, and sort of the, the de minimis requirement for any investment that I would look at is that it has the, the potential and good potential to outperform inflation, keep pace with inflation over a five to 10 year period. Awesome. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on, which is really interesting, we get this question all the time. So you talked about investing uh, via the limited company, but you briefly mentioned that the limited company could pay a pension as well. Um, I understand why you're not saying that for Mr. Araf because of his existing, existing income and his wife's existing income. Is that right? But do you want to just put some flesh on that? Because that's something that's really interesting. Yeah. So um, ultimately, a a company um, can pay uh, salaries and um, uh, and pension contributions and can provide other benefits if it wants to for for anybody um, really, but for those um, for those expenses, which is what they are for the company, to be deductible for corporation tax um, purposes then it needs to meet what's called the wholly and exclusively test. So in other words, for it to work from a tax perspective, the individual that you're paying the salary and the pension contributions and possibly other benefits needs to be adding value for the company. They need to have a role. They need to be working for the company. However, moving back to your to your question, Tommy, for um, a doctor with a lower earning spouse who doesn't have much pension benefits, if that spouse is genuinely doing 10, 15 hours of work, uh, of work a week for the company, maybe through um, administrative roles or reviewing medical legal reports or uh, finance uh, billing, et cetera, then you could take a view. Well, that's a that's a role that would attract a salary of fifteen to twenty thousand pounds. Therefore, I might pay that person up to the um, NI threshold, which um, Arav has mentioned in his email. Above that, I might start to make some pension contributions. And the good thing about the company making pension contributions is that's a, a deductible expense. So you won't pay the nineteen percent corporation tax on that amount of money, and it will ultimately end up in a pension for the person who doesn't otherwise have much pension benefits. And then, for a long way down the line, you should be able to extract that money very tax efficiently. Um, so there's lots of good reasons to make pension contributions for somebody in that position. Um, but you do have to get over that hurdle of meeting that wholly and exclusively test. And I wouldn't just do it without careful consideration. Um, I don't know if there's anything Andy wants to uh, wants to add on to that. Uh, not really, Nick. I think you've covered it off quite quite succinctly, really. <laughs> All the key issues. I mean, it, it, yeah, the most important thing is proportionality here in that you are paying a package to that employee because they are an employee that is 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 linked to the level of work they're doing for the business uh, and it's reasonable. Awesome. Um, there's so much in this and I'm all slightly aware of the time ticking on, but I really, one thing that Dr. Araf did not mention anything about, and this is something that we see all the time, uh, there's no mention of protection here. Nick, do you want to jump in on protection? Because um, that seems to be a big omission uh, here for me, but I'm excited yeah. to see what you say. Absolutely. And I think I think protection uh, 
takes various forms. And I think, Tommy, what you're alluding to, you've obviously spent too too much time around uh, financial services, people like me. I think what you're meaning with protection is life cover. But but to add on to that, one form of family protection, which again, hasn't been mentioned, but quite often comes up in these conversations for the wrong reason, is wills and lasting powers of attorney. So I would imagine there's about a 50% chance that Araf has a will in place from my own personal experience, and he should absolutely 100% have a will in place um, to, A, yes, ensure that his estate or his wife's estate isn't subject to the laws of intestacy, sorry, but, but more so to ensure that um, the guardianship of their children is all covered off. And, and if something were to happen to both of them, then it's very clear how the children are treated and how the assets are held for those children, et cetera. So yeah, as a young parent myself, a parent of young children, I should say, um, I, I would say that's the first thing. Make I'd, sure say you you're, I'd say you're a young parent, Nick. You know, both of us are young <laughs> Thanks, parents. Yeah, you definitely. Go. Yeah, under. Yeah, we'll give ourselves that, shall we? Um, <laughs> I, think, I think also at that point, it's also important to review wills as well as your children get older, um, which reminds me, Nick, that's something I need to do. Um, so it's quite useful being on this podcast to remind me I need to do that now. See, Absolutely. even the experts aren't perfect. And uh, I want to stress that because, you know, nobody's perfect. So yeah, Andy, review your will. Nick, we are definitely, definitely young parents. Um, but yeah, great. Great, great just, point um, about wills. Yeah, just and, and off the back of that, this is going to be another sort of example of cobbler's shoes. I would encourage everybody um, to have lasting powers of attorney. I don't know if this is something that's made it onto other podcasts, but it's a bit of a, a mini crusade of mine. I've, I've had a couple of clients over the years who've who've come a cropper, for want of a better expression, because they haven't had lasting powers of attorney. Um, I'm sure a lot of you will have come across them um, in a in a professional context but lasting powers of attorney just basically appoints somebody to make decisions on your behalf if something happens to your capacity i.e lose physical or mental capacity and it, it, it it's debatably worse than not having a will a lot of the time not having powers of attorney so i know we all feel uh, immortal a lot of the time but you can do it yourself you can download them and fill them out and not the easiest of documents to follow but alongside a will everybody should have an lpa i don't as i alluded to um but i I should be. So maybe Andy and I can have an afternoon getting these things sorted out. Um, but coming back to your question, Tommy, three minutes later, um, life cover. Um, yeah, most people are underinsured. Some are consciously underinsured, i.e. they just don't want to pay for it. Um, most are unconsciously underinsured. They sort of think, well, I'm employed, I'm doing well in life, I've got a decent salary, the NHS pension scheme would look after my my spouse, widow, widower, um, if something were to happen to me. And whilst there's an element of truth in that, it was, I have to say it'd be nowhere near enough. So just to briefly touch on what would happen in the event of death, effectively, there's a lump sum paid out of the pension scheme, assuming you remain an active member. That's another tick in the box for remaining an active member a lot of the time. Um, and then there would be a uh, a widow or widower's pension paid um, to your spouse for the rest of their life, which I won't go through the, the mechanics of it, but effectively it's not a huge amount. Uh, it's made, it works out, projects your pension to retirement age and then gives you the 50 or 33% of that pension. Um, 
one thing I always encourage people to sort of do is, is put those numbers up against what your current net income is. So if Arab is currently 34, you could say that he's probably receiving a salary of about £5,000 a month net from the NHS. And he's broadly bringing in a similar amount, maybe £4,000 net from his private work if you just work on broad numbers. So give or take £110,000 a year of net income he's bringing into the family. He's probably going to work another 25, 26 years. So... Uh, if we do the math on that, that's nearly three million pounds of net income that he's going to bring in for the family. Compare that to his NHS lump sum of two times salary and the spouse's pension. There will be a very significant seven figure, i.e. millions, um, difference between his earning potential if he stays alive and what would happen if he if he passed away unexpectedly. And that's the point that needs to be given a lot of thought. And that's really what needs to be ensured in the event of death. And critical illness. Um, and there's lots of different ways you can do that. You can provide income, or you can provide lump sums, and you can insure against not being able to work, against suffering a critical illness, and indeed against dying. And you just need to go through those options. Again, not to plug services too much, but a good protection advisor, a good financial advisor who knows the medical world is worth their weight in gold, really, and getting that cover, uh, I would say. So, yes. Get yourself insured appropriately is the underlying message there, Tommy. Definitely. And it's something, despite us dealing with death and disability on a daily basis, a lot of doctors seem to think they're immortal, um, which is always interesting and don't have the appropriate protection. But I think what you said there is really important. You know, to his family, Dr. Araf is a three and a half million pound asset, right? And if he dies, the NHS is going to give him a two times lump sum. And there's some uh, survivor benefits that you talked about. But the NHS does have these extra benefits of being an active and active being the key word member of the scheme there but uh, they're not going to be enough for most people uh, and so relying on those alone is pretty risky dependent on your personal circumstances with the usual disclaimers so that is a really amazingly quick run through of there um Tommy, as, just one other thing I'd, yeah. I'd say on that just because a lot of people sort of i think a lot of the uh, inertia with life cover is the fear of cost but actually um Dr. Arav, just insuring from a death perspective, is going to be beer money a month, something like that, really. Um, so it doesn't have to be a significant cost. Yes, when you start insuring against critical illness and those sorts of things, it gets more, inspe- more expensive. But the reason for that is because it's more likely to happen. So it's a bit of a false economy not insuring against it. But just covering that, that event of death is really not very expensive. Yeah, really good point. Um I was all pleasantly surprised, um, you know, how much it cost me per month. And uh, I've listed it as one of my biggest financial mistakes because, well, for many reasons, I didn't did it too late. But uh, having it as just such peace of mind, because I know that if I go, uh, you know, my family will be able to sustain uh, the lifestyle that they have currently without me. Um, and if if I didn't have that, they would have uh, much, much less benefits if I just followed on my pension. So really, really good point. Um as you know, I like to finish the podcast on a really difficult subject and uh, feel free to say that your brains are about to explode because this has been like an exam for you guys. But I just want to pick up on something that he said about, you mentioned it already, Nick, buying a Tesla or buying an electric, 100% electric vehicle, because there's, there's loads of different ways to buy one of these. You can buy it by the limited company, you can buy it via salary sacrifice, you can walk into a dealer and put down 130 grand or whatever a brand new Tesla is. So shall we go there 
So, I mean, just uh, the, the the company and the benefit in kind side of things is is, is a really good planning point at the moment. Um, and you would have talked about this previously, and it is quite well advertised at the moment. Electric vehicles are um, uh, the government want people to invest in electric vehicles. So they're making it very attractive to companies for companies to purchase electric vehicles for their their staff. And the way it works, if you buy an electric vehicle through a company, um, the full value of the car purchase at the point you buy it is allowed against your income. So if you bought a £40,000 car, then £40,000 of expense goes into your account. So uh, account. So you reduce the, the, the ta- corporation tax payable quite significantly. At the moment, um, if you have a company car, then as an individual receiving that company car, you have to pay tax on what's called a benefit in kind for having that vehicle and the company providing it for you. For most uh, petrol and, and diesel cars, it's quite significant and it's only increasing at the moment and makes it quite expensive way of actually buying a car. Um, but for electric vehicles at the moment, it's really cheap. Um, so at the moment, the benefit in kind is, is 1% rising to 2% of the vehicle cost. So if you bought a, you know, a 40000 uh, car again, two percent of that's eight hundred pounds. You pay tax on eight hundred pounds of income for having a car. Um, so again, it makes it very attractive. What I would caveat is a point Nick made on other points earlier is that that's the tax rules now, and we have seen it previously that they they brought this in a, a few years ago for electric vehicles, and then start ratcheting up the percentage quite significantly. Um, so it, whilst it's attractive at the moment. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to stay at one or two percent forever more. Um, so it's 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 uh, yeah. At the moment, it's quite an attractive proposition to, for the company, and certainly in, in this situation, I would also say as well. Our general advice with cars is don't change cars for tax reasons. Okay, change cars when you want to change a car. Um, get the tax relief that follows it, but don't go out just buying cars just because you're going to get tax relief on it. Um, because the only people that make money out of that are garages, not you. Um, in terms of the pension angle, oh, I didn't, didn't really want to go there, Tommy. You, I thought, well, you know, we, you've left that one to the end. There is a, a bit of an issue, particularly mainly for those in the 1995 scheme uh, that have taken out these lease cars through the NHS in the, when the lease comes to an end. Um, and the salary sacrifice comes to an end, uh, potentially their pensionable income could leap and they could have an annual allowance hike in that year. Um, it just needs to be looked in individual situations, you know, possibly taking out another lease, but that's just deferring the problem further down the line um, or uh, the timing of when that lease comes to an end. But I think probably people that have committed to these things through the NHS are stuck with it now uh, and will just have to face the consequences coming out of it. Yeah, so, so 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 much key points there. So you can buy it via the company and the benefit in kind is really nice. If you bought it as an individual, you would do salary sacrifice. Is that is that right? Is that my understanding correct there? If you're buying it as an individual, I w- yeah, you probably wouldn't do it as salary sacrifice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Through, through on the NHS schemes at the moment because it's not just about, you know, it looks attractive. These salary sacrificings are sold, you know, by car dealerships ultimately about, you know, it's saving you tax because yeah. um, you, you, you're giving up income on which you pay tax to, to have a car, which you're not going to pay a lot of benefit in kind on. But the issue around it with the NHS is the interaction with the annual allowance and the pensionable income. Yeah. Uh, particularly for those in the 1995 scheme. And that's often, well, clearly not, not being thought out by a lot of people. 
Yeah. And um, really simply, the reason that it's a problem in the 95 scheme is because the benefits are calculated differently in the 95 scheme versus the 2015 scheme, which Dr. Araf is saying he's mostly or wholly. Yeah. So the 95 scheme as a consultant, you're based, um, it's based on your, um, the the pension is based on your um, years in service, um, but, but on your final salary. And at any point, and its final pensionable salary—that's the crucial point here. Um, and if your final pensionable salary jumps up significantly, either because you get a pay rise, or in this situation because your salary sacrifice has come to an end, uh, and you go back to receiving that pay, that means your final pensionable pay has gone up, which means your pensionable benefits go up, uh, which is good in some ways, but actually. It's probably not gone up as much as you think because it actually went down the, the, when you took the car out. Um, but you, you could result in an annual allowance tax charge at that point in time. Yeah, I think the key word there is could, right? Because everyone needs to run their own numbers on this because literally everyone's situation is different. And the key point to make is that the salary sacrifice reduces your pensionable income. So when you stop your, when you hand back the car or whatever you do, I don't have a car on lease, so I don't know how it works. But when you hand it back, your pensionable pay would jump up by the amount of the salary sacrifice. Have I understood that correctly? Correct, yeah. Okay. That's simply it. Yeah. Um, but I like your overall thing there of uh, never buy a car to save tax because, uh, yeah, there's um, no, it's not going to work, is it? Um, okay. Anything else <laughs> that we need to cover on this mammoth case? Uh, no, I mean, I think the, the key thing is coming out of it is, is probably, it's, again, it's, it's, it's what we started off with, really. The two points that jumped out to me were the, the 200,000 level of income and how to control that as best as possible. And the second would, uh, the thing that jumped out to both of us was the family protection side, because having a young family, um, high earners, uh, is often overlooked. Um, uh, as he quite rightly said, I think it's not just medics that think they're immortal. Um, I think anyone in that age group just doesn't really think long term about what could happen um, or even short term of what could happen. So that income protection side for the family and the will protection side is really, really important. Yeah. If you're interested in wills, we actually have a podcast coming up on that where I do my own will uh, on the podcast uh, because that was on my financial to-do list and it is now ticked off. I've got a will, got a lasting power attorney. I am all good. Um, I've got a lot dead actually, but don't tell uh, my partner. Um, Nick, anything else that you wanted to uh, add to this uh, monster discussion that we've had this morning? No, I think there's no sort of massive pearls of wisdom, but I think looking at Arab and his, and his wife, um, I think an ideal scenario for them would be, I mean, if we could just wave a magic wand and, and achieve this, um, to get them both earning uh, on an employed basis £99,999 a year um, and have everything else going through the company subject to the VAT and IR35 uh, and then building up those company funds. I think that way they've probably got £10,000 a month of uh, net family income. Um, and hopefully that will be sufficient to, to give them everything they need and, and may even be able to build up some more sort of cash and share ices, et cetera. But I think um, whenever I'm talking to 
doctors or or other uh, clients. That hundred thousand limit is something I'm very focused on. I think here you've got two people, and if you can get that planning right over the next 10, 15, 20 years, and of course legislation will change, but there's always going to be little quirks like that. If you get them right, it makes a massive difference throughout the course of your life. Awesome. Uh, a couple of things that I wanted to finish on. The first thing to say is both of you is uh, this takes a lot of time, a lot of your brain power. Um, just thank you so much on behalf of all of our listeners for educating us on these issues because it's so complicated and none of what you've heard today is advice, but hopefully it's been useful to some of you to think about. So thank you to both of you for coming on again. And I think the final thing that I would say is that as doctors, we need to educate ourselves around the issues, uh, and hopefully that's helped here. Uh, but if anything demonstrates the benefit of specialist advice, it's something like this because uh, it's so complicated. So, yeah, thank you so much, guys, uh, for your time today. Look forward to uh, you both coming on the podcast again. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review, uh, subscribe, tell your friends about this so that we can help everybody to make better financial decisions. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Tommy.